Hello, welcome to People Data Insights. This is your host, Paul Ryman, founder and managing partner of Novo Insights. Thanks again for listening. I'm excited about today's conversation. Uh, it's an interview with Richard Rose now, who's the VP of People Analytics Strategy at One Model. Richard is a self-professed uh, solid C math guy, but whose passion fueled him to become a people analytics leader with experiences at big tech companies and then creating and leading innovative people analytics teams at smaller organizations. He's now at One Model, uh, One Model being a people analytics platform that you should know in terms of how it's bringing transparency to AI, how it's bringing solid data modeling uh, to fuel better people analytics. In our conversation, Richard and I cover a number of fun topics. Of course, we talk about artificial intelligence and where generative AI fits within the people space and people analytics in particular. We talk a lot about the importance of data modeling, particularly in the age of artificial intelligence, You know, with some specific examples in the talent acquisition space for those of you uh, who focus in that area. And then we do talk quite a bit about uh, trust in our data and systems, which does take on a whole new meaning in this era of AI. Um, and the importance of how people process and technology together is what fuels kind of greater insights within people analytics. So I hope you enjoy. Here's my conversation with Richard. Hello, Richard. How are you today? Hey, Paul. I'm doing great today. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining. Um, so my audience uh, hasn't heard from you before. So why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit, a little bit about yourself. So tell us what you do. Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Richard. I'm the vice president of people analytics strategy at One Model. But um, if I think about what I do, I love the people analytics space. Uh, I've been enamored by it by for a number of years now. Had an early career nonprofit, found my way over to people analytics, and have just thrived in, studied, understood, and and just fallen in love with this whole space over here. I think um, some people follow basketball. I follow people analytics stuff and uh, get real fired up about it. But um, if I, if I think about kind of where my mission is, it's about lower the barriers, bring more people in, and help people understand the value of people analytics. So I, I think uh, somebody who's as passionate about people analytics as others are about basketball suggests you are <laughs> towards the end of a spectrum in terms of your love for data. You know, we joke uh, on this podcast before, I've asked people on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you love data? You might qualify as an 11 <laughs> on that perspective. <laughs> It's up there. I, I was telling someone the other day, I was like, I met somebody who was just as passionate as I was about people analytics. And my friend told me, well, that, that makes two of you. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think I'm up there. You know, it's when I think about people analytics, part of my love for it is definitely the, it's the people side. I mean, it's, it's the fact that we're part of this HR decision-making organization that we drive towards business results. So as much as I love data, I, I, maybe the passion falls into decision-making too. So it's a, it's a complicated answer there. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely up there on the people data side. There you go. So there, there probably wasn't a table at the career fair in elementary school for people <laughs> analytics evangelist. Um, so like where, where did you, when and how did you fall in love with this, right? Were you uh, just a math nerd that picked this by accident? Or I guess give us your backstory about getting into people analytics. That's fascinating. The, the math nerd question in particular, because like I've always, I've always enjoyed math, but I'm also... I have been a solid C student in statistics my entire life. High school, college, graduate school. Uh, honestly, I took a biostatistics course because I wanted to learn R. Got a very solid C in that class. And it is the the theory is there, but the, the application excites me. Hmm. And I, I think where I really found my passion in the space is how do I how do I make models and how do I get models to tell me things? That's more of the passion than than kind of the the technicalities, the math. Which, which have eluded me at times. But if I think about where did it really open up for me? I was actually, I was starting my career in nonprofit at the YMCA and I was part of a group called Education Initiatives. And we ran uh, after-school programs, online learning and math for kids in Chicago areas to kind of bridge that gap between school ending and parents getting home. And studying and figuring out how that business ran just opened my eyes to things like, well, we're compensating people at the same amount we're getting from the, this, this budget. How are we actually going to run this program from an administrative perspective? And, and building those models to make sense of that really opened my eyes to, hey, if, if we get these things singing and talking to each other, we can impact the business in very different ways. 
Hmm. So again, I, maybe I come at people analytics a little bit more from the modeling side than the math side, which is an eye opener for me. I didn't realize that before this conversation, but <laughs> I, I think that's probably the right answer. And obviously, there's uh, it's it's a good it's a good call out actually where people analytics is there's a lot of math, right? Let's not kid ourselves. And uh, mm-hmm. I imagine if you retook some of the stats courses now, you might do better than a solid C, just having uh, <laughs> honed the craft hope. a little bit, right? I would hope. You know, but it is, um, it's not just the math, right? It's not just about crunching numbers. It's about supporting decisions. You know, maybe that's a good a good place to start. You know, we happen to have been chatting about this separately, so let's do it now. You know, there's so much about the confluence of thinking around analytics and AI right now. Are they the same? Yeah. Are they different? I guess, give us your take on how, how do you distinguish sort of people analytics and the work that you do from what's, you know, sexy in the press right now, Around you know generative AI and and chatbots and things like that. how do you how do you talk about the the separation there? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I, I don't think we've figured it out entirely yet. But when, when I think about generative AI, I really see that's more of that that camp of like automation and scale. How do we do what we need to do, and how do we do that at scale with maybe less people or different people or allow people to do more human things? But to me, generative AI is a little bit more of the kind of HR operations camp, mm. which is how do I how do I accomplish HR at scale? And generative AI is going to have just tremendous impact there. I think there's a number of spots where it plays in people analytics, especially around some of the things I've seen around natural language to SQL or natural language to query. I think that's a really interesting spot. But when I think about like what, what is the core of a people analytics team and what do they do, it's really around making decisions to drive the business forward, making workforce decisions to drive the business forward. And that's still a very human task to understand like, why are we doing this and, and which things should we choose to do? I think when the AI starts to make those decisions, you end up in a, either a creepy territory or an ethical territory in a lot of ways. And keeping that human in the loop, especially when it comes to meaning or making the business drive happen, is critical. That mm. said, I, I am a little nervous that generative AI has really taken over the landscape because we, we do a lot of really phenomenal AI work in the people analytics space, but it's it's AI around decision-making tools and random forests and et cetera, all the different models that you can run to help you understand your data or think about your data in different ways. I think we're at an interesting crossroad where I don't want to feel like a Luddite saying like, hey, stay away from the generative AI stuff, but it's also, we can't lose track of the really incredible things we're doing in people analytics just because this hype cycle has totally kicked off on the generative side. Yeah, it's a, it's a good call out. And you know, on my last published episode, I actually made some comments about there's some less uh, glitz and glamour use cases for machine learning, you know, if I can distinguish that from AI for a second, which they're hard to distinguish, but there's just some good practical value ads that exist and they're not going to get as much spotlight attention as, wow, look at this thing that wrote a whole article for me in, you know, in eight seconds, but it might actually have more longevity, stability, and ethic behind it (laughs) because it's a, a more controllable outcome. So there's definitely a ton of value. You know, the common thread, of course, is data sets that are multifaceted from which math can derive trends, outcomes. So what, I, what I'd love to spend some time talking about is the data. And you know, you and, and your colleagues at One Model have recently put out a, a lot of thinking around data for people, you know, thinking about people analytics, building for good analytics, which is hard with a modern people tech stack spread out across multiple applications. So I guess I'd love to give you a chance to talk through kind of some of that thought leadership that you've been pushing through to think about the data and how do you structure data to be people analytics, people analytics ready. So I'll give you the floor to kind of chat about what, what you all have been working on and what you've been publishing in that space. That's exciting. It's, it's an awesome question. It's, it's a big one. When we think about kind of who we are at One Model, I mean, we, we are thoroughly engaged with understanding and making use of and thinking about data. I mean, day in, day out, that, that's been our history. Is we, we come at it from this perspective of, how do we gain information from this? And how do we help the business from this lens? Or help, how do we help them access this data? Because data is not valuable by itself. You've got mm-hmm. to really process it, understand it, and model it, and get it ready, and prepare it, and then tell the stories with it, and then it becomes valuable. But it's in its raw form, it's, it's, it's quiet, it's locked up. So I, I think a lot of times when we think about what one model does is we unlock uh, employee voice at times with, with data. Mm-hmm. But when, when I think about the process, we, we put forward the, the people data platform a white paper recently, which was my attempt to sort of add some framework around this, like what should your data platforms accomplish for you? And when I think about that, I think about five big steps. I think extract, model, store, analyze, and deliver. 
And I kind of break that into the data foundation as the first three and the, the people data applications as the last two. But when I think about those first three, I think there's a really interesting argument to, to make sure we get out there, which is extract, model, and store. A lot of times, I love my IT friends. My IT friends are incredible. They do great work. I see teams saying, well, my IT team can extract it and we're storing it in the enterprise data lake. Why do we need another system? Why do we need someone to come in to help us out with this? And they skip that whole section of model, which is to me the equivalent of like holding Workday by its feet and shaking it till the coins come out. It's like, you, you, can't, just, you can't just pull data out and expect to make use of it. The, the architecture is so critical uh, to getting this right, especially within HR where time matters. I mean, mm. you, you can't have a promotion after somebody quits. If the data says that, you know the data's wrong, and you've got to find a way to stitch those things together and build those stories across. So when I think about the value that these people data platforms deliver, a huge amount of that value is around how do we build the right data structures and how do we get data out in the way that it can actually sing in harmony with other data sets. Mm. And coming back to that, that AI side for a second, something I think gets lost at times is the way we extract data for reporting is fundamentally different than the way we extract data for machine learning or AI. Mm. And that's a tough one for a lot of teams because for reporting, it's like, hey, I can get a snapshot every month. I'll be fine. I can get my reports out. I can do my end of month closing, whatever it might be. To train an AI model, you actually need a really high velocity of data. You need a high volume of data. And so what that looks like is more of like a transaction-based day-by-day, action-by-action stitched together in this really long thread about what an employee is and what an employee does. That's what's required to actually train an AI model. So as much as I hear about generative AI or even people trying to do predictions with AI, if you haven't extracted your data and modeled your data, in with that in mind, uh, you're, you're at a, a spot where you can't start. So yeah, obviously yeah. I get really passionate about this space and I, I could I could dig deeper, but those two are big ones that I think I, I'd love HR to really grapple with a little bit more, which is, hey, are we modeling this? Are we architecting it to make sure we can make use of it? And have we extracted this in a way that is is truly valuable for where we're going, not just where we've been? Yeah, it's it's a good call out, and one thing that I've you know been watching uh, closely over really the last probably seven or eight years as the investment in people tech has actually been extraordinary, even compared to other kind of enterprise application sectors, is you can find a tool that does every little thing possible for for a people team, and making the you know each of those applications might have analytics or some form of reporting built into it but they don't talk to each other very well. Even when they say yeah. they have integration, that usually just means, okay, fine, I'll take the roster from your core HR system and ingest it, and hey, you know, ta-da, we're integrated. But to be able to extract value about, well, what, what happened in my core HR world? How does that relate to voice feedback that might be in this other system? How do I understand that in the context of other you know, business data that has nothing to do with the people space? Um, you know, that, that, that explosion of technology has created data being everywhere and having a thoughtful strategy to stitch back together. Um, ideally, you stitch it outward, meaning you have a plan for it when you, you know, deploy those applications. But how do you bring that back together so that you don't have data silos and you can actually yeah. look at that is, is a, a unique challenge as so many people teams have implemented, you know, point solutions to accomplish certain goals. Um, it's, even it's more a tremendous point. It's a tremendous point. And when I, when I think about that, I think we can lose sight of what the world really is by seeing it through the lens of the technologies we bought. Mm. And so really each of these technologies, little silos, HR is really, uh, has, a, has a predisposition to this because our comp people don't use recruiting tools. Our ER people don't use tools for the, the people analytics team. Like it's a very, very different set of tools for a very diverse function but the purchases we make can sometimes turn our eyes into these little silos. The reality of like, what is HR without technology? Let's, let's take a step back and say, okay, what if we had no technology? What would HR be? And HR is about how do I understand my workforce and how do I drive towards the business results with that workforce? How do I help that workforce become who we need to win at our business? And the workforce is a system. The, the interactions you have at onboarding deeply impact your conversations with your manager deeply impact your compensation understanding. It's, it's a single system of work. And so I, I think the, the problem we run into is we get these, these little silos that are built around our technologies where one model or systems like one model come in is we say, okay, let's, let's get back to a single view. Let's get back to, we need to be able to look across and see our data across these different systems, unlock that value and bring it into a, a spot where we can listen to it again. And, um, 
Mm-hmm. And like no blame to each of those HR tech systems too. They are doing a phenomenal job at their point solution, at what they're doing, at what they're doing well. And the founders and builders of those companies have built those companies to really attack whatever that problem is and solve that need. But solving the need is not the same thing as exporting the data so you can make use of it and listen to it and understand it later. Uh-huh. And it's such an afterthought for a lot of HR tech companies. And again, it's not their fault because it's, it's not what they're meant to do. They're not meant to export their data. A lot of times they want to protect their data. They don't want to give up their data. And so yeah. systems like one model where we really thrive is making sure, okay, let, let's get that data out properly, securely, privately, get it into one spot and then unlock the value from it from that central position. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious from a, you know, the model stage being the one that you kind of called out is one that often, you know, skip, right? IT can extract it. I've got a place to put it. Yeah. Can you give, uh, you know, for those that, that are, don't know that problem acutely, right? There's some in the audience that are probably like, oh, thank you for saying it. There are others that are probably less clear on, like, what does that really mean? So is there an example or a story or a, an illustration that can talk about how you can run sort of data out of sync if you don't have a thoughtful approach to data modeling? Yeah, and I've got an example, and I've gotten into some heat for this one before because some people agree with it, some people don't. So I'm, I'm going to use it just as an example and and take it for what it is. But when I think about, like, what's the benefit of really good modeling? It's being able to understand stories that you might not have thought were possible before. And I think about recruiter by first year attrition. So to understand who your recruiters are by the first year attrition rate of people they've brought into the organization would be a powerful thing to know. Really where where I've gotten into hot water is like, is that a way to performance manage them? Is it who's really responsible for it? There's a lot of other questions there, but let's just picture this for a second. It's valuable to know some outcomes by your recruiters. Those data sets are so wildly different. Mm. When one sits in your applicant tracking system, one sits in your HRIS, and blending those two things in the back end is sometimes not just a conversation about like matching an ID, but it actually might be revolutionizing how that data set looks. Like one might be snapshots and one might be a data feed. How do we get those to talk to each other again? And so being mm. able to connect that up and sync that together, I'll speak to recruiting data too. Like the, the deeper you go into it, just the weirder it gets. And for anyone that's dug into recruiting data, like having a a candidate ID, a uh, recruiter ID, a interview ID, a applicant ID, a resume ID, it's like all of those little data, each one of them's tagged and monitored and sectioned away in different spots. How do you know how to bring those things together? And that's where a HR data architect, someone who has architecture understanding Mm -hmm. of what is the business thing we're trying to solve from the HR lens and how do I stitch those data together in a way that's meaningful to the business requires subject matter expertise from someone who knows HR. Yeah. And, and that's why in the long run, I, I really see the vendors supporting this space so closely because like vendors like one model, like we, we have decades of experience in HR. We love HR. We're here to do HR. Like we're, we're not a finance. We're not an IT. We're, gonna, we're an HR organization. And we thrive in this space because we have people on our team that have that depth of knowledge. Yeah. There's also like a talent play then that like for each company, are we going to have the Fortune 500? Everybody hires an HR data architect. I don't think there's that many data architects that care about HR, (laughs) you know, like let alone that the quality there's, they're hard to find for marketing and sales and finance, let alone try to bring one into HR. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I I could, I could obviously keep going on this topic, but it's, uh, it's one I'm very passionate about. I was like getting the model right is is so critical to having those downstream things work really, really well. Yeah. Perhaps a, the same example, but maybe less controversial because it's less about performance of a, of an employee is attrition by recruitment source. Yes, there you go. That, right? I'll use so that one next time. Just change it slightly <laughs> to be less about the person. And it's not a performance measure then. It's more about, look, if we see that everyone loves to either love or hate employee referrals, right? Like referrals yeah. tend to have more stickiness or not. That's hard, <laughs> especially if you want to get it to applicant source. Do we get them from LinkedIn? Do we get them from, you know, cold outreach, whatever? Um or another one uh, related, just just a, a few more examples to help, help hammer it home for people. Yeah, please. Um, c- contact intensity with a candidate is a metric that mm. I, ma- I made up. But it's, you know, you can define it differently in different systems. But how many times did you touch them in the process is an indicator for how easy or hard the recruitment process was. You know, we had to segment it based on meetings versus emails, yeah. offer negotiation, whatever. But Premise being like that's that data is really locked up in your CRM. Absolutely. Maybe not even your ATS, right? They might even be pre-applicant in some cases. And that can be predictive of a variety of things once they come on board. Okay, so Paul, you use that example and just voice over what I said and use that one instead. 
<laughs> but yeah, again, you can see I could be passionate yeah. about sort of uh, recruitment in particular. <laughs> and, and it's one of those things where historically we've had to just make do with what we have. And that, that's the story of, um, it's shared kind of like the, the drunk under the light post. There's a guy looking for his keys and looking for his keys at our light post. And a police officer comes by and says, well, what are you doing? He's like, I'm looking for my keys. They look for the keys together. And he says, well, I, I, don't, I don't think they're here. I don't think they're under the light. He said, oh yeah, they're, they're not under the light. I lost them by the door, but this is where the light is. And it's, it's one of the, I'm, I'm probably butchering the, the joke a little bit there, but it's, um, it's one of those things. It's like, we've had to deal with what we were given for so long, especially in HR, where HR is at the bottom of the totem pole for investment. We make do with what we have. We're scrappy with what we have and we get by that it's, it's almost this, like when we're given this wealth of what do you want, we, we've got to build that muscle to understand, okay, what can I get and what could I do? And um, having systems that can pull in those very different, very unique or, or specialized data sets and blend those with ATS information, uh, that, that's an incredible feature to have. Yeah. There's a lot of organizations, you know, particularly more mid-size, right? So get out of the Fortune 500 for sure, where people analytics to them is I have a core HR system. It may or may not be integrated with my ATS and maybe I have a couple of other, you know, point solutions. Their method of, of people analytics is I'm going to extract some data and crunch some numbers, right? Describe, you know, the, the maturity model. And if you're an organization with a relatively immature approach to people analytics, how does the people data platform concept, as you describe it in the white paper, kind of come to life? Like, how does it mature? And, you know, is it something you have to wait until you've got a system to sort of manage? Or is, is it a model that applies as you are maturing? Yeah, that, that's helpful. Yeah, I, I see it as a framework that these are the steps we have to do, whether they're supported by technology or something we go after by ourselves, like extract, model, store, analyze, deliver. You've got to go find the data. You've got to get it organized in some form or fashion. You've got to make sure you're securing it. Really, that the storage spot is really about secure it, make, it, make sure it's private, make sure it's, it's protected. Find some story to tell and then get that story back to your stakeholders. And so th there is this sort of like, incredibly, incredibly basic version of this, which is just people talking to each other even. Like the very the very primitive data transfer is two humans having a conversation and sharing data through voice. And it's like, you, you get your data through voice, you, you understand it in your head, you store it in a piece of paper and you run the report. And that, that's not recommended, that's, 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 but it is a, a form of this like, how do I make sure decisions happen? And whether I do that through what I have or what I could do at a more mature state or what I could do at a very advanced state, I think this flow between those five steps is a nice one to keep in mind because it's also when you assess yourself across those five, you say, okay, where, where am I maybe missing something today? Mm. And I'll, I'll recommend a lot of people take a look at that modeling one. If it's if it's not apparent, I care about that one, but that's where teams get really stuck up with like, hey, reporting's really hard and I can't seem to do data science and I don't seem to have what I need and it takes weeks and weeks to finish my reports. A lot of times it's because that modeling step might be more immature and an investment there can actually deliver data science, which is kind of funny to think about. But unlocking those things earlier in the stream can flow downward and help you out later on too. No, it's a good point. It's um, it's not meant to be a checklist, but it's a helpful mental framework just to think about yeah. how am I putting to, you know, once I've extracted, extract is probably relatively straightforward for most individual systems, but then how am I stitching them back together? You know, even if it is just, I do a VLOOKUP in an Excel spreadsheet, it's worth thinking through well, how did I connect those two? You know, what basis did I use uh, to to do that lookup, et cetera? So it's it's definitely a framework that applies. I'll admit too, like the framework as I started, I thought I was onto something novel, and I sort of backed into a pretty decently gen generic data science framework. But it's one that I, I'm trying to make sure I'm delivering it through that kind of HR lens, and we're making sure we're kind of seeing these things from that perspective. So th there's other ones out there. Mm. This one I think fits really nicely for understanding the systems in our space. And for thinking about where they might thrive or where they might struggle or where they might better fit your organization. But yep. um, th there's a number of these kind of frameworks out there just to put that out there. Yeah, that's fair. Questions I get from you know my clients and from others I keep in touch with around sort of data management, you know, generically described for people analytics is around security and visibility. You know, where, where do you think through who has access to it? Yeah. You know, because there's always the age old, well, I do we want IT to see all of our people data? if they're the ones supporting our extract and storage. Um, so I guess talk a little bit about this um, governance of security. Who sees what? And is that something to think through at extraction, at modeling, at storage, all the time? 
you know, what's your advice on security and privacy as it relates to this? Yeah, every every single step of the way. I mean, it's got to be by design from the start, from the perspective. And it's also why we're people analytics. We're not just analytics. And, and that that's part of what we bring is this, this ethical training from our HR backgrounds and our HR subject matter expertise that we come in and say, okay, what, what does this mean around this data? I, I think I'll, I'll even go to something more fundamental, which is each piece of data we work with is a person who has friends and family, who has a livelihood, who has a life outside of work, and it's a colleague. It, it's they, They've got a whole experience that it, it, it's just a, there's a gravity to that compared to I've got my dollars and cents in finance or, and I don't, I don't mean to bash my finance friends. They, they, they do great work too. But I, I think there's a real responsibility to people in HR understanding our data that it's not mm. just data, it's, it's humans. And starting yeah. from that perspective with everything we talk about, I think there's, there's increasingly, there's both the, the right thing to do. I, I think that's a perspective people should have. There's also increasingly a legislative regulation environment that we're seeing creep in, not only around how we manage data and security and privacy of that around like the GDPRs and the, the EEOCs, but the the AI side of it is starting to get some regulations with New York and California, Europe, mm-hmm. uh, Italy in particular, just, just shut down ChatGPT for some of these things they're looking at around that. I think there's a, a regulation wave coming around this mm. and doing things the right way now and preparing things the right way now will prepare an HR team to survive that audit and that regulation that's coming. So yeah. I, I think there's, again, it's it's the right thing to do. There's also this like, prepare yourself because we're, we're heading this direction. I think lastly, there's also just business results that come from doing this correctly, which mm. is you can't do people analytics if your employees don't trust you. Like if, if your employees don't trust you, you will get lies in your survey. And it's like, that's not helpful. That's not good. And it's like, and it's like truly like they won't, they won't respond to surveys. They'll manufacture data. They'll, they'll go a different way with it. It's like your employees trust is so critical to getting this done right and to supporting them, to supporting the company that you cannot move forward in this space without a strong ethical and privacy background. That's, I, I feel very strongly about that. My antennae are definitely up these days around sort of ethical use of, of AI and, you know, what, where's the data coming from? How do you make sure that it's not learning the wrong things because robots do that. Um, You know, how do we make sure we're monitoring how it's learning? You know, just like, just like our little ones uh, will absolutely repeat everything we say. (laughs) So will the AI repeat everything it sees and you want to be careful about what it's hearing. (laughs) So if you don't have that lens, it's a, it's a big problem. It's something we we take to heart really out at one model. And it's, it's something that upon joining and kind of understanding the investment they've made over so many years from our founding, we really invested in this one AI platform, which is truly a, a transparency focused audit focus traceability. Traceability is a fascinating word. I, I've been thinking a lot about talking to our chief data scientist because he's incredibly passionate about it, which says at the point of prediction, can you trace back to the data that was used to train that model, how that model was trained? And do you have that articulated in a way that you could produce it if you have to? Mm. I mean, that understanding of how does your system capture that along the way to build those trails that you need to defend yourself, to defend your company, uh, to also just show that you're doing the right thing when employees ask. Um, It's a a rare thing to build the platform in that way. And um, I've just got to give uh, Taylor Clark a shout out for that over at the One Model team for having seen that kind of from from a distance. And as we're approaching this next era, we're, we're feeling very confident and prepared around what we built in that space. Yeah. And to be to be clear, like that's not just about that. That's usage within people analytics, not this sort of generative AI world where, you know, these are real practical traceability challenges around if it's identifying Paul Ryman as a high attrition risk. How do we know what are the facets of my employment, of my decisions, of my feedback, of my, you know, in my email usage, right? Whatever data is sort of connected to it. Being able to be clear on it's that, not because Paul is this age, this color, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, this gender, right? Or maybe it is, but like the traceability allows you to really understand it rather than a magic wand, black box. Trust me, Paul's likely yeah. to quit. I'll go further too, because I think a lot of systems will avoid those sort of electric fence features and say, well, I didn't include them, so I'm not biased. And that, that could not be further from the truth. You, you see uh-huh. so much bleed over from some of these features into other features in your data set that could still contain the bias. You've actually got to include those things and then make sure you're scrubbing the impact afterwards. And to have a system go that step is, again, it, it's it's rare, but it's also one of these like nuances of HR that our systems have to have that debiasing built in. 
and to be able to articulate what we're doing and where and when. Yeah. Uh, because again, it's it's the right thing to do. It's potentially legally required, and it's also good business around kind of understanding the trust for our employees in that space. Totally. Yeah. I, quick story, just because I think it's fun. Uh, when my father was looking for employment not that long ago, and you know, he's he's not a young man. He'd be the first to admit that. He goes, well, you know, I, I'm trying to make myself look younger on my resume. So I've deleted, you know, 15 years of experience. I don't have any dates related to my education, things like that. And I'm like, but but dad, your email address is at AOL.com. <laughs> like, <laughs> so while, it, while you didn't put your age on there, while you didn't put how many years of experience you have, there's an indicator. The robots yeah. are going to crawl through that and probably not find too many people with at AOL.com addresses. And it's going to infer, whether you want to or not, yeah. that you are of a certain age. <laughs> Talk about an example of trust, though, too, where it's like, in order, because he didn't believe or he couldn't trust some of these teams, he removed experience, which like, what right. a loss. What a loss to that company that's trying to hire him or find him to, to have that wealth of experience that he has, that he's deliberately trying to kind of manage and, and protect around some of these AI systems that are out there. And then uh, they, they're missing out on someone who's incredibly qualified. Totally, totally. He was so afraid they're going to say, well, because my age has a, a, a six in the front of it, yeah. they're not going to want to hire me or, yeah, yeah. lack of trust in a potential employer. But the, the steps you take to mask it and then the data is still going to point against it, probably, right? If you really think of critically about how the machine learning would scrub something like that. Yeah, I'd be interested in seeing a study around that to see some of these recruiting systems that are out there, if they're looking at email addresses and the, the postfix. Who knows, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's you don't have the level of transparency around how it's finding things for sure. Yeah, it'd be it'd be good to see. But that's just to point out, like that's what we mean by traceability, like really understanding yeah. how is how are these factors being derived from what data? You know, it's important to really have have trust in the model, uh, so that people yeah. can trust the decisions you're making with the model. I'll add to it something that as HR folk, we should be demanding of our HR tech vendors. There's a couple mm -hmm. things that we should be very comfortable asking about when we're purchasing or when we're going down this, this path of trying to understand like, hey, if, if we're hearing about someone say AI, well, do you have trails of that? What was it trained on? Can I tweak it to change to my company? Is it trained on just my company or other companies? There are really good questions that we as HR tech buyers need to get really comfortable with very quickly to make sure that we're not getting sold something that's totally different or something that might actually be harming our employees if we're not being careful. So it's a, I think that's a real call to action for HR right now is it's time to get educated on what it means to purchase AI systems mm. and to do so with the diligence that we, we've applied to a lot of other systems in the past. We, we don't purchase a payroll system willy-nilly. We don't trust the payroll system of what they're telling us. We know how to talk about payroll. It's time to get that same education and that same understanding when it comes to these AI systems. Yeah, particularly the kind of broad talent intelligence, you know, ecosystem, which is just so broad in terms of the data that they are pulling from. Yeah. You know, how do we know that what it's learning about Paul Ryman from LinkedIn and other things that it's finding on the internet? Like that there's a lot out there that could be abused if you're not careful. And we need to be very diligent in asking hard questions about how is it ethically sourced and ethically used so that we're not you know, perpetuating evils uh, in using the systems. Yeah. If I could come back for a second around as an organization's maturing in people analytics, right? So, you know, when I started at my last company, one of the first meetings I had, the analytics team was talking about some, you know, pretty advanced modeling they had aspired to build. And I pulled them back and I said, hang on, you know, there's some simpler things that we need to do first to just support good decisions. And Let's start with the basics and mature into, you know, predictive analytics and things like that. And a lot of that was informed by, you know, I think where you started in this conversation, which is like it's decision support. Like we're trying to help people make good decisions. And sometimes a big model is part of that solution. Sometimes it's just easy access to good data. Yeah. So I guess for, for people leaders or people analytics, you know, folks who are just earlier in their journey, and maybe needing some proof or some examples. Like, what are some of those underappreciated applications of people analytics that, like, sure. just don't get the attention of like predicting this and, you know, whiz bang applications, but stuff that just adds a ton of value in the people analytics space that we often forget about? Yeah, I've got a funny one. I think I think some of the best people analytics projects I've done are when I tell people, no, you cannot have that data. It's time to make the decision. And it's an interesting spot to be because I, I think the people analytics leaders, the people analytics practitioners, you're best positioned to tell someone when to stop. 
Mm. And I, I think a lot about, uh, it's a bit of an older book now, but Nate Silver's Signal and the Noise oh, around. Yeah. We, we've got a lot of noise going on. We, we've got to find the signal, get as much signal as we can, and then we have to make a bet. And analytics is about making a better bet. It's not about knowing the future. And so we're going to know 70% we're making a good decision. I mean, sometimes we're going to make a bad decision, but we're feeling more confident than if we didn't have the data at all if we were flipping a penny. And so I, I think sometimes some of the best things that a people analytics leader can do is knowing the landscape, knowing the data, knowing the time it takes to make something happen, and knowing what the business needs to accomplish is saying, no, this is time for a gut reaction. This is time for you to make your decision that you, you actually know what you want to pick already, but you're just coming to me for another another pass at something, another pass at something, but let's actually drive forward. So um, yeah, not doing people analytics can actually be really powerful. I think... Uh, I know that's a little bit different than what you're asking for, but I, I think it's an important one to keep in mind, which is like, you're, you've got these experts out there that are there to help you drive decision making, not to do fancy models. No, it's a good, it's a good point. I uh, also a quick story from a couple of companies ago in my own career where I had a leader kind of pushing for a, a more uh, advanced view of predicting sales attrition. So we would know when do we need to have a ramped up rep ready to go. And, you know, I, I, I remember thinking about that saying, look, I could build a really sophisticated model. I have great data on the sales force. Like, I could be really, really surgical and specific about this. But at the end of the day, how much better is that going to be than, you know what? Like, we have 18% attrition in the sales force. That's been a pretty stable number. Guess what? We should probably have 1.5% of reps available every month. <laughs> like, I could probably get yeah. that more specific and say it needs to be 1.6% in April and 1.4% in May. But how much value is that yeah. when there's still a, a, a huge uncertainty on recruitment cycles, on recruitment quality? <laughs> so I, I, talked, I talked myself out of doing what would have been a fun project just because I'm not sure it was going to generate a whole <laughs> lot of extra value over just basic average at that point. Ab absolutely. Yeah. It, it, the, the quote comes to mind, it's a, it, it's not stupid if it works. And like, it, it, cause at the end of the day, it's got to work. But, but I think about that too, where when, when we dive into these really deep dives or there's a time and a place for that. But if we do that a little too often, we're actually taking time away, which of a precious resource, yeah. which is the, the kind of the, the finite amount of time and energy that the people analytics team has to go after problems and it's a precious resource you've been given as a team to spend appropriately to drive the business. And if you can't make that return happen, or if you spend too much time doing the kind of deep dives or going after those kind of fun projects, it can yep. it can reduce your political support. Maybe yep. it's the most polite way to say it. But um, I, I will say though too, I, I, I think the there's a bit of a counter argument to that, which is interesting, which is I, I have seen a lot of teams start people analytics from the position of research. And they start as a couple psychologists. They start as a couple uh -huh. management researchers and they just do big projects. And they do it with, especially around the research side, you can get a lot done with surveys and you can do surveys of employees. You can get the survey data and you can actually knock out a really, really advanced project without having everything else kind of in order or without having kind of the quick wins done. Where I've seen that drive value is you end up building a long tail of trust Hmm. which you, the team that's investing in you, that's investing in people analytics, trusts you, knows you can deliver, can see that you can do those big things and says, okay, I, I want to do more of that. Let's go together. And then you get that investment to go further. And, and it, there's there's not a right or a wrong way to do this yet. I mean, just people analytics being such a new function, there might be a right way that's coming in a couple of years that I've never heard of still because we're still so new. But I think this sort of like quick win value drops business decision approach as well as this like high value, mm. high impact project approach. Both of them are successful in different ways. And that's been an interesting thing to see and just appreciate yeah. is that there's still a lot of different approaches out there to coming to people analytics. Yeah, that's interesting. I My perspective there is probably skewed in part by having come from, you know, smaller-ish organizations, right? Only a couple thousand employees and it sounds like quite the luxury to have a psychologist doing research for fun, right? Like analytics is yeah. done by the person, you know, who also has to do 11 other things. Yes. So yeah, I, I, I think I, I see that lens a bit more, but I can certainly see the value. Um, you mentioned something in that, that I'm, I'm, you know, I would love to peel in a little further on, which is survey based sort of analytics, you know, especially in the organizations that I tend to work with and come from, you know, you have a survey platform you're using it's really hard to get data out, honestly, right? Like, because it's built around privacy. <laughs> it's built around confidentiality. 
So I guess, how do you all think around using, you know, sentiment data is the term I use for surveys, yeah. right? How people are feeling, you know, given the confidentiality that tends to be built into that collection process. Do you have to kind of get over the hump of using a third-party provider that keeps it confidential and do your own thing? Have you found ways to use the somewhat anonymized data that comes out of those platforms? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to go at it. There's one is I, I really get precise about the words anonymous and confidential. Mm-hmm. Where anonymous being nobody has access to the data at the row level. When I think about row level, that's at the employee sure. level. Confidential then, a specific group has access at the row level. It's there is a there's both like design in how you build your technology, but also in how you paper your team or how you build policies around your team, around how that should work. And at the core of it, it has to be based on transparency and trust with the employees who are taking the survey. So I think upfront, being very clear about what the survey is, who will see it, how it will be used is critical. I've worked on on teams before. One one of the teams that I built, we had uh, two IO psychologists that were managing our survey. They were both individual contributors. I deliberately made sure that they were the only ones that had access. Because if I had access on that team, I would have been able to see their results. And I I needed them to have the employee experience of being able to complete the survey to and understand and express their their feelings Mm -hmm. and thoughts through that survey process. So we were very, very careful about confidentiality and where things were stored and how things were moved and who had access to. And then also auditing that afterwards and building those kind of ways to alert or, or notify when someone accessed something they shouldn't. So I, I think to do real next level, like combining of that survey with your core HR data, with your collaboration data, with your work tech data, you've got to find a way to get it at the real level and at the ID level. And then that blending across is where you can get true value. Without that join, without that unique identifier, it, it is much harder. There's a lot of folk that I've talked mm-hmm. to folk that have done it at kind of the aggregate level or at the team level, and they've found ways to make that work. And there, there's there's differences of opinions around that, I think. But it's, again, coming back to that, like getting your security and your privacy stance very open, very upfront, very transparent, allows you to get that level of trust with your different teams. The example I think yeah. of, too, is the... Um, the annual Googler survey, they, they have something like 95% participation, like just a tremendous participation in a very long survey, like hundreds of questions. But it's it's high participation because those employees know that somebody is listening, tracking, and will change the business based on the results of that thing that goes out. And that's, that's the important part is, if I take this survey, will someone take action to benefit me, my work, and help me thrive? If an employee can say yes to that, they will agree to more confidentiality and less anonymity. And some employees may, may not just be interested at all in having a confidential survey. And that's, that's okay too. And you've got to give them the ability to do that. I think 100% compliance in a confidential survey would be a scary thing. You would get weird data. You, you'd get bad data back too. So I, I think allowing people to opt out appropriately and giving them that as part of that stance of transparency and privacy. But um, yeah, I, I think to get to that next maturity level for a lot of people in analytics teams, you've got to have the data confidential, not anonymous. Yeah, it's a, it's a good call out. And it, and it, puts the importance on that modeling step just the same where we started this conversation. Um, I know at one organization, I won't name which, you know, we, we went down the path of, you no, know, we're doing this in-house. We are going to pulse our employees, you know, regularly uh, in a confidential way, non-anonymous. We told them which three human beings would be able to see the row-level data. My name was, look, by name, <laughs> here are the three people yeah. that are going to be able to look at what you say. We understood there'd be consequences for that. You know, there's just some people who are going to see Paul's name and say, yeah, I'm not telling that guy what I feel. And that was okay. Like we decided to move on, you know, but because we had that level of granularity, we were able to produce some phenomenal insights around, you know, the longevity of bounce effects after somebody gets a raise, you know, how people felt relative to when an email went out from the, you know, CEO of the organization about a topic, right? Like you can learn Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff when you can control for when, Right. So the model had to understand when transactions were occurring, being able yeah. to stitch that across our homegrown survey approach, you know, to a workday HCM system and plus one other system to kind of understand the employee experience. But the modeling around how do I make those data sets talk together with that unique employee level granularity? You know, we learned a lot about, you know, after a town hall, everyone felt better about the company for two weeks. Um, just in general, because you felt included <laughs> yeah. for two weeks and that effect starts to wear off. Uh, it's tremendous. After you get promoted, you've got about a six-week window where you feel really good about your pay and then you forget about the fact that you just got promoted. 
and those probably aren't scalable across every organization, but like those types of insights, which lead to a whole set of conversations about why that occurs, um, you can't get that without confidential, non-anonymous data and without thoughtful ways of putting those data sets together. Perfectly said. Perfectly said. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things that as an HR team, we've got to understand when we're making those decisions that will set our analytics teams up for success or not. And it was it was one of the powerful things we had at the at Argo AI where it was we had uh, a single team called called People Analytics and Automation, and we touched on uh, process, tech, data, and analytics together. It was almost like a little verticalized People Analytics team where we we reached into some of these upstream factors where we could standardize the process, standardize how it came into the tech, standardize how the data came out, and then we could actually do analysis that was deep and meaningful because we had that reach upstream. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of teams don't have that arrangement or setup, especially larger teams, when you start getting more and more niche and teams get bigger and bigger. But having that understanding about, okay, the decisions I make about which survey vendor I select will have deep ramifications on how I understand the feelings of my employees later on. And bringing your people, analytics people into those conversations around buying is just so critical for that. Yeah. You just raised something, which I think will be a great final topic for us to chat through. You know, one of the hard truths that I throw at, you know, my prospects when they come to me and they say, hey, I'm looking for an analytic system, which one should I pick? Um, The first thing I say is, look, a new system actually isn't going to in itself solve your problem, right? Technology alone does not solve sort of your people analytics problem. It's, unless it's unless it's one model. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I assume Al- that's what you were going to say. Although you, you've said a number <laughs> no, of times. No, no. I, I agree. I agree. I agree with you. Keep going. I'm yeah. sorry. Just... That's, no, it's okay. You've said a number. I mean, that, that how you use that is important, right? And the yes. human understanding and, and understanding the people. So I guess make the case for, you know, the, the traditional people process technology sort of framework, right? Mm. Which is most important? And if you can't pick one, because you know we all like to say it depends. Give your give your bullet point argument for each one. Like, why is it that you need to have great processes to do great people analytics? Why is it that great people are needed? You know, why yeah. is it that good technology is needed? How would you frame up the prioritization or the importance of each of those? Oh, that's an unbelievable question. I, I think coming back to my my answer from the previous one, I, I think there is a flow which is really interesting. Which is if hmm. you get it wrong higher up you end up with more pain lower down. And so, especially between process and technology, technology has to come after you've figured out some processes. You have to know what you're doing and then that gets embedded in technologies which then automate and scale what you're doing. If you're doing something that's really counterproductive to your business and you bring in technology, you will scale that counterproductive thing and it will just affect your entire business, Mm. which is not what you wanna be doing. So I I think having a real understanding about what is this process? What is this flow we're doing? And how do we see technology actually scaling this thing? Uh, very critical. So I think those two are related and sequential. Mm. People, people's interesting in that because it's it's almost a little bit different from my perspective. I think people people definitely flow into both of those and, and are, are and without people, what are we doing? I, I think unless you're a what's a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that they're out there now running on the blockchain. Uh, without people, but um, it's very rare to find a business without people. And everything we do is around people. So I, I think I think a business can exist with only people. It cannot exist with only process or only technology. So I, I think mm. people takes the top spot, process number two and tech number three. That's my my hard and fast opinion about that topic. No, I'm with you. And, you know, the way I've spoken to that at times is, you know, even great, great tools around people analytics and simple processes that, you know, deprioritize the need for a robust process, somebody still has to convince a decision to be made or for a program to be implemented. or And that is still a uniquely human task. Even the best dashboard has, the dashboard itself has never convinced somebody to do something different. I'm convinced of that, right? A human yeah. still has to say, hey, this is doing this. I think it's because of that. Let's try this thing. The robots haven't figured that out yet. No technology has solved it in itself. So without the human to bring it to the point of insight and action, what's it doing? Right? Yeah, it's interesting that this is true or that this fact is out there, but we we create value through the decision, not through the data. And the, the person is really who's advocating for that. So I I always say it's people first. Got to have the right capabilities, the right storytellers, those who can consume and interpret that information that comes from good 
process and technology. So similar perspective. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tie it back to what we're up to in one model too. I think we hear a lot about like build versus buy, but I think the reality is something we're realizing at one model is we actually might be build plus. Mm. We might be a way for people to build people analytics through the lens of one model and with the support of one model and you still build because at the end of the day, we're not automating a people analytics team away. There's some other solutions out there that are saying, we will automate your people analytics team. You can be people analytics in a box. You can just use our technology and you'll get all the, the results. That, that's not the ethos of who we are. We are a enablement and we support and scale people analytics, but we're not going to replace the human. The, the human has to be part of this whole model to understand. And again, coming back to what you're saying, at the end of the day, have to make that decision. So I, I think we're in that sort of build plus space. And yeah. uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I'm reflecting on, I put technology third and I'm working at a vendor now. I should tie it back in some way. Uh, but yeah, it, I think it's 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 who we are. We're, we're there to enable and support people. We're, we're not there to replace yeah. people. And technology is certainly an accelerant to what talented, capable, data literate humans in the people space can advocate for, right? So, you know, there's things that I remember, you know, in 1999, taking a long time that happen a lot faster now. Uh, just based on what good good technology can provide. So yeah, I, in putting people first, I do not suggest that uh, that technology is not important. It's more from a, if you have to go in order, there is a bit of yeah. a prioritization, and and one certainly has a differential impact at, at derailing things if you're not careful. So uh, Richard, this has been fun. I always love geeking out with other people analytics geeks. Likewise. We will definitely put in our show notes and, and some links access to the white papers that One Model's put out and access to the One Model platform. If anyone's looking to get in touch with you in some fashion, what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, please find me on LinkedIn as well as uh, onemodel.co slash blog. Uh, that, that's where we put out articles. I, I have a, a tremendous amount of brilliant colleagues that are all putting out different information too. So take a look at us there. But um, feel free to find me on LinkedIn. And Paul, thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, thanks. This has been fun. I appreciate it, Richard. So that was a fun conversation with Richard Rose now, VP of People Analytics Strategy at One Model. People technology and people analytics is a pretty complicated space, uh, and certainly for maturing and growing organizations, uh, it's important to think hard about the right way to approach your technology stack, um, your systems, and how you model that data for better analytics. Novo Insights is here to help. So if you're interested in maturing further along the people analytics spectrum and have concerns or, or want to invest in how you think about your people data, please reach out. Uh, we are here to help. We're thinking a lot about the different vendors in the system, the different tools and approaches that you can use to make an impact with that data. So we are here to help. As always, thank you for listening. If you love this episode, uh, give it a like on your favorite platform, share it with a friend. Uh, we do appreciate the word of mouth. So once again, thanks for listening and until next time.